What's up, Open Floor Globe? This is Ben Golliver with The Washington Post. I am joined on the other line, as always, by Michael the Pod Pina. Now, Michael, we recorded last Thursday, and pretty quickly after we recorded, something that I would consider to be, you know, newsworthy, not necessarily a surprise, but after 22 NBA seasons, Vince Carter, the former lottery pick, slam dunk con- uh, contest champion, Olympic gold medalist, and everything else, formally announced his retirement. Uh, it was a long career with you know many, many chapters from the Toronto Raptors to the New Jersey Nets uh, to stints with the Orlando Magic and the Dallas Mavericks and the Phoenix Suns and your favorite team, whoever they might have been. Uh, Vince was everywhere, but I thought we should double back today, Michael, and maybe show him, you know, his his uh, you know proper due, his proper respect, and dig into some of the biggest burning questions about Vince Carter's career. How does that sound? I'm greatly looking forward to this conversation with you, Ben. I'm going to start off with the easiest one. Did you like, love, dislike, hate Vince Carter? You know, when you're looking back, stepping back. And taking it all into account, where do you fall on the um, on the range of emotions? Because I'll be honest, I never really liked Vince Carter. You never liked him, really? Not really, Michael. I gotta say, he fell to that category for me of like the that generation of the next Jordans, and I just despised all of them. You know, it's sort of like <laughs> you're walking around the outlet mall and you see the U.S. Polo Association, and they've got Ralph Lauren's logo. You know, they've got polo in the name and you're just standing there looking at it like come on guys like just get your own get your own thing and i'm not saying this solely to trying to disrespect him i felt this way about all those guys whether it's stackhouse even kobe bryant i mean the list goes on it just bothered me that anyone would be put into that same conversation as mj but i know there's a lot of people and there's a couple years uh you know between us michael i think i'm a, a few years older than you there's a lot of people of your age range who love Vince Carter. And I know a lot of other podcasters out there, whether it's the No Dunks guys, I mean, they love, have always loved Vince Carter. So where do you fall on the spectrum? I personally don't recall ever having an emotional connection to Vince Carter either way. I didn't love him. I didn't hate him. I would sum it up as mostly indifferent. He amazed me in a lot of ways, obviously, with his athleticism. I think the 2000 slam dunk contest was a pivotal moment in my just life as an NBA fan. I mean, I loved the NBA before that, but that night was just so incredible and so memorable for a lot of reasons, if you're like a 12-year-old kid like I was at the time. Uh, But... It's like going back and kind of looking at his career now just as a whole, there aren't too many wow moments besides just like the in-game dunks. I mean, his legacy to me is more about longevity than his peak, which is really kind of depressing and kind of a shame. And it, it, it that saying that statement feels like I'm holding something against him, but most of his career was as a role player as opposed to being a star. And he might have been the best player ever that I can think of at morphing from one level of status to another without whining about it. I mean, not everyone has the humility to do that. So props to him on that regard and props to him for staying in the league as long as he did and loving basketball as much as he does. But in terms of comparing him to some of the other all-time greats, even just the all-time greats from that era, he just comes up short to me and he's not as significant. 
No, I hear you for sure. Well, let's dig into this because, you know, if we're describing a guy whose nickname is half man, half amazing, who had arguably the greatest dunk contest performance ever, who Mm -hmm. literally jumped over a seven foot two human being during a game to have arguably the greatest dunk of all time, a guy who came through the most blue blood program of all, North Carolina, a guy who was a certified all-star, I think for like eight straight seasons. What was it about Vince Carter that didn't allow him to kind of break through and capture your heart? Because I'm, I'm sensing some coldness from you, Michael. It's like this guy, if you, it's sort of central casting, right? It's like if you just say, oh, yeah, went to Carolina, you know, it was amazing dunker, great scorer, all-star level player. Shouldn't we sort of be naturally kind of magnetized towards a player like that? But I agree with you. I, I never really felt that uh, emotional bond. Was it his personality? Was it just the lack of rings? Like we never saw him get over the hump, so people didn't feel kind of bought into his story. Was it something to do with how he carried himself in Toronto, where I know he alienated a lot of the fans there by sort of forcing his way out? How would you kind of break down this recipe for like why we don't love Vince Carter? I would say he's he's kind of... He epitomizes disappointment in a lot of ways. I mean, he didn't get out of the second round until he was 33 years old with the Orlando Magic in 2010. And even that team, which he led them in usage, and I believe he was second in scoring behind Dwight Howard, like that team won 59 games. And I personally was never like afraid of them. They didn't strike me as a great team, as a championship caliber team, because Vince Carter had this huge role there. So he just never, like, I'm trying to think of, he was never the best player on a championship contender, like a true championship contender. And, you know, it's really funny, like, I went back and watched the 2001, infamous 2001 Game 7 second round against the Philadelphia 76ers, where he uh, decides to, he rightfully decides to attend his own graduation at the University of North Carolina and then fly to Philadelphia the same day. And he's criticized at the time for it because people were really dumb back then. And I'm sure people would still criticize him now and they would be dumb today. Dude, education. Why would you ever, <laughs> why would you ever value education, Michael? It kills me. These athletes. And those are the same people that criticize players for coming straight out of high school, think they, they needed to stay in college basketball for all four years probably so yeah you can't win with some people but I went back and I watched that game and uh so the you know Vince doesn't play particularly great in it you know he finishes six for 18 from the floor he scores 20 nine assists seven boards three steals two blocks zero turnovers plays all 48 minutes Raptors lose by one and he misses a buzzer beater that would have won the game uh, down one, as I said, uh, and from the from the left corner. And, you know, I kind of was thinking after rewatching that game this morning, like if he hits that shot and the Raptors advance to the conference finals where they would have faced this Bucks team that they could have beaten, I think. And then they go to the, 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 the advance to the finals after that where they probably would get crushed by the Lakers. But like, does Vince Carter's whole cr- career trajectory change if he makes that shot? Like, I don't... I don't know. Maybe I'm putting too much on this one play, and it's just kind of in my mind right now. But for a guy that had so many struggles in the postseason year after year, and 
as you mentioned, the the situation in Toronto where it was really ugly towards the end and the fans really turned on him and I think he turned on the organization and it was really sour. But if he hits that shot and they go to the conference finals and he performs pretty well there, I think it could all have been rewritten differently. Yeah, it's really interesting. So I see a couple things happening. I mean, first of all, I think that, you know, he doesn't have the underdog uh, label to to use at all. I mean, he's Mm -hmm. so naturally gifted. He makes the sport look so easy that the average Joe can't necessarily relate to him in terms of how he plays. Like, you can't exactly go out to the playground and be like, all right, I'm going to do a 360 windmill on a 10-foot hoop like it's nothing. I mean, we, we sort of can't do that, right? So the love that a guy like Iverson got from so many people for being, you know, heart of a champion, this warrior type player, oh, you know, pound for pound, the greatest guy, like all of those fans are just not available to Vince because he's just too gifted, right? At the same time, the types of players who have those gifts usually get glorified almost exclusively in the Jordan mold for winning, right? So it's like six rings versus five rings versus, you know, Dwayne Wade calling himself uh, Trace, right? When he got uh, the three rings, um, you know, LeBron, we know his ring count by heart. All of those guys, that's sort of like the first line of their legacy. And for Vince, it's zero. And not only is it zero, as you're mentioning, you know, it's not even finals appearances and it's very rarely conference finals appearances. And there's nothing uh, when it comes to him being the main guy, you know, even when he's teamed with really good players, um, you know, it's still pretty empty. So, those types of moments that would pull us in, if he hits that three-pointer, well, he would have a lot more diehard fans. That's for sure. He would have definitely had more leash with the Raptors if he hits that one shot. So I don't know if his career uh, trajectory in terms of, you know, does he actually go on to win a title? I'm not sure that would change if he makes that basket, but I think his reputation is certainly different. And it's not all just because he missed one shot. It's because he wasn't able to kind of get back to that same peak, um, you know, during his prime. And when you look throughout his 20s, I was really kind of surprised by how few All-NBA appearances he had. I think he only had two during his career. Two. Um, yeah. And part of that is because there's lots of other good guards, you know, in, in that same time frame. Uh, but I also think part of it is just like he was sort of cursed as being very good, but not great. And, you know, in hindsight, as time passes, you know, I'm definitely the type of person to be hard on guys if they don't win enough. I I think you probably know that about me. Um, As time passes, though, and he does start to evolve into these other roles, Michael, um, I do think that we wind up maybe letting him off the hook a little bit, like not holding the the early stuff against him quite as much because Mm -hmm. he sort of went somewhere where nobody else did. I mean, Jordan had to be the number one option even on the Wizards down to his very final game, right? With Kobe in the last season, you know, it got kind of laughable with guys like D'Angelo just standing uh, around watching him go and, and he's still trying to be that number one alpha option every single night. Vince Carter basically gave that up not too late after his 30th birthday and kept playing for another decade. That's pretty wild. Yeah, and I think building on just a lot of what you just said, particularly with someone who is just so physically imposing early in his career and can basically do whatever he wants, like he never lived up to that standard and that bar that he set for himself. And I think a lot of that has to do with just his personality. And I mean, this guy's just like, you watch the 2000 slam dunk contest and there are between dunk on court interviews that are televised. And he is just so polite. 
And he's so humble throughout his entire career. There's a quick little story about Vince Carter, which I read this morning in this article that was published on ESPN.com back in 2000, where when he was a junior in high school, his scoring average dropped heading into his senior year because he was so worried about setting up teammates and worrying about where his teammates were going to go to college and he wanted them all to look good. Like, can you imagine Kobe Bryant <laughs> doing that? I mean, I was just going to say, <laughs> we don't call that the Mamba mentality, do we? No, we do not. I mean, he it's this selflessness that allowed him to play for so long and to swallow his own pride and, you know, come off the bench and be a spot up three point shooter. But like and and again, like there's nothing necessarily wrong with having that attitude. But when you like, I just also think it kind of it, it cuts into the, the the peak that we were kind of robbed of if he had a different kind of mentality, if his mindset was more like Russell Westbrook's or Kobe Bryant's or these guys who just want to rip your throat out at every chance. But that's just never who Vince Carter was. And it's it's like kind of just disappointing. I don't really know any other way to put yeah. it. Yeah, I mean, to get to that Super Hall of Fame level, you've got to just be not only like a 99.9% athlete, but also from a comp- uh, competitor standpoint, you've got to be, you know, 99.9% there too. And I think that's the question where, um, you know, people might have asked over the years, like, does this guy want it as badly as some of his uh, contemporaries? And that's a really tough question. We can never get into a person's head, but I think that that one maybe did loom over him. You know, at the same time, um, I feel a little bit of sympathy for him because it felt like he was the guy who just kept barely missing out on the party. You know what I mean? Like mm-hmm. he goes to New Jersey and they had been to the finals two years in a row and then he never gets to, never gets there. He goes to Orlando like one year after they're in the finals. Uh, they, they, they fall out in the conference finals. Uh, you know, he goes to Phoenix or I guess Dallas. They had just won the finals. Uh, he never gets out of the first round, I think, in Dallas. Then he goes to Phoenix. They had been in the Western Conference Finals. He doesn't even make the playoffs. It's like, you know, uh, when he gets to Memphis, he never really reaches the same heights as they did, you know, sort of in the peak grid and grind era. Um, it's just like every stop of the way, he was like 15 minutes too late for the glory, if that makes sense. And it's just, when that happens like four or five times in a row, you feel bad for a guy. And it also says something about those organizations where, you know, they're trying to keep their momentum going and they're turning to Vince Carter as like, hey, this guy could be a key role player for us, or he could be a a fourth or a fifth starter, uh, or he could be a key guy off the bench, a floor spacer. I mean, he had all these different roles with those teams. And yet, um, it never quite uh, quite goes to plan. I guess that just symbolizes his entire career here a little bit. But you know, I I feel like maybe we're being harsh on him. And I want to ask you this question. Is he a Hall of Famer when you add it all up, when you add some of the big moments that we talked about, when you add that Olympic gold medal, um, when you talk about the longevity? I mean, nobody else in NBA history, not even any of the centers who just hung around forever and mm-hmm. ever, managed to play 22 seasons. When you look at the the personality that you're describing, uh, where he's you know being a great mentor to his teammates late in his career, but also just kind of um, you know a, a major NBA citizen, if you want to call him that, and, and most likely about to enjoy a long media career here going forward as well. Do you think that Hall of Fame voters will look past the lack of rings and and the only the two All NBA selections and conclude, you know what, this guy is a Hall of Famer? 
Are you asking me, do I think he'll be in the Hall of Fame or if I would vote him into the Hall of Fame? I ask you every question, Michael. I want every <laughs> answer that you've got. But it's an important distinction, so I agree. Uh, let's Okay, so I do think he will go to the Hall of Fame. I think he's very likable. I think that people really respect the longevity factor. I think when you talk about, I guess, like, just the numbers throughout his entire career, they're good enough to get in. It's like 24,000 points or something, even more than that in his entire career. It's just like the numbers are really difficult to ignore. And if you look at Basketball Reference, which has this metric that kind of measures uh, what the percentages of you actually getting in, his is 94.5% right now. So I I think statistically and just who he's been, what he's meant to the league, the the ridiculous dunks, which, I mean, they're all incredible and anyone should like press pause on this episode right now and go to YouTube and watch them if you want to because they're, they just never get old. But for those factors, I think that he will make it. If I were personally voting, I don't think he's a Hall of Famer. Like, I just, I, the case just isn't there for me. Um, I mean, he made... It's tricky for me. I hear what yeah. you're saying for sure. I mean, a part of it is the accumulation factor, right? So he's got 25,000 career points. He's got uh, 6,000 career rebounds, uh, 4,700 career assists. I'm rounding here mm-hmm. a little bit. More than 1,000 steals, almost 1,000 blocks. So I imagine there aren't very many players in NBA history who can match all of those just because you know he played for so long. Mm-hmm. I think also he's got something like 10 straight years of 20-plus uh, point game uh, uh, averages, which is probably another signature thing. Not very many people have done that. Um, so is what's holding him back for you the the peak in terms of winning? Is that team success? Is that what you're holding against Team him? success and then also like individually. I mean, the 20 points per game in 10 straight years or whatever it is, is obviously impressive. Uh, he only made two All-NBA teams, as you said earlier, in his whole career. He made zero All-NBA teams after 2001. He never finished higher than 10th for MVP in his entire career. His, That's yeah, crazy. His career scoring average is 16 points per game. And I mean, I'm, I'm kind of nitpicking there because he did take all these different roles and he played for longer than a lot of other guys. And so it's kind of, it's a difficult dance you're trying to do when you're criticizing him for playing so long. But he, the facts are that he only averaged 16 points per game in his career. Played for eight teams and was traded four times, including on draft night. Uh, waived by the Phoenix Suns. Uh, the only time he got out of the second round was in 2010 with the Magic. And they were favored to beat the Boston Celtics and lost and fell down 3-0 in that series. And Vince Carter, I mean, you kind of have to put a little bit of the blame at his doorstep there. So when you peak as he did, I think, after his third year in the NBA. And you have to remember, he entered the league at at 22 years old. So he comes in and he's basically already a star. When you peak after your third year, I just think that that's that's really problematic. And he never really had a signature moment in the postseason. He never really had a... I mean, his, his apex is like the slam dunk contest, which... It's probably the greatest slam dunk contest performance of all time, but still, it's the slam dunk contest. That's the first thing you think of when you think about Vince Carter, isn't it? Yeah, what you're saying is you're not going to be voting in Zach Levine. Um, (laughs) Yeah, here's my thing. Uh, We have a problem because Mitch Richmond is in the Hall of Fame. 
and and so if that's the if that's the bar, I have a really hard time saying Mitch Richmond yes, Vince Carter no. No, I'm with right? you. So I don't yeah. know if that no. means we have to like tighten up who's actually gotten in. But I agree. My first instinct when I was weighing this question was to be like, you know, Hall of very good, uh, you know, whatever you want to call it, but really not an all-time legend, an all-time great. But I do think that we've we the bar has come down here so far that I do think he's going to get in. I think he could get in pretty easily, uh, to be honest. Let me ask you on that dunk contest, is the elbow dunk the greatest dunk in a dunk contest, or do you have a, another one that you favor? The honey dip, cookie jar. Uh, really interesting that you brought that one up first. That's not the first one I think of when I think about that dunk contest, although I will say it, it might be the most physically impressive. But what I think about first is the, the like the first one, where he just comes out and he does this ridiculous <laughs> like 360 windmill. Like I don't even know how to describe that dunk. But he just gets, he pulls it off out of nowhere, first try with this ridiculous ferocity. And the camera cuts away right away to Shaq, who's got his like gigantic camcorder. KG's got his camcorder. These guys are just, they're flummoxed. They've never seen anything like it. And it just kind of set the tone for the rest of the night. So like, that's the one I first think of when I think about that night in Oakland and when I think about that dunk contest. But when he, no, go ahead. Well, let me on that one. Uh, have you ever been at like a college football game or a sporting event where they do the flyover with the military jets? I have. Um, that's what Vince Carter did in that first. <laughs> that's dunk. a great. Um, yeah. It was like his own military flyover where it's just like, yeah, we're going to be flexing our muscles right now as an entire country. Here's the best that our military has to offer. That's Vince Carter going out there doing the 360 with the windmill, you know, bringing it down by his hip. It's a crazy dunk. I didn't mean to like overlook that one, but here's why I think that elbow dunk is even better and arguably the best. You go back through and, and watch a lot of those dunk contests. I mean, everybody will say along the way there, it got pretty stale. I mean, there's a lot of gimmicks, whether it's, you know, Cedric Sabalos with the blindfold. I mean, you know, Brent Berry's trying to do his thing. Like leading up to that <laughs> moment, the dunk contest was in a pretty rough spot. And the guys today... I mean, they have like legitimate coaches, you know, where they're like helping them craft these different, uh, you know, dunk ideas, orchestrating it. I mean, Aaron Gordon's bringing the TikTok girls out onto the court. <laughs> you know, it's just like, it's pretty wild, right? But the, it, the thing, it was sort of like the moon landing with that elbow dunk where he does it and the reaction is not like, you know, everybody's freaking out. Oh, it's, it's so amazing everyone's looking around like what did he just do they're asking that question did he just put his elbow into the basket like are you even allowed to do that and everyone's trying to calculate like how many other players could do that is that even something that someone else could try to replicate you know if this was a game of horse like could Tracy McGrady go and do the exact same dunk then I, I know for me when I was watching it I was like worried about his ligaments I was like oh my god like is his arm gonna fall off from doing that that seems really dangerous I actually had a middle school teacher, I'm not going to call him out by name, but he lost a finger in a net. Uh, and so he was, he had nine fingers. Wow. Um, a basketball <laughs> net. Incredible. Yeah. Yeah. In, in a basketball net. So you can imagine my horror right around that same time of my life, thinking about uh, Mr. P, I'll call him, when Vince Carter could lose in his entire arm in the <laughs> rim, trying to show off what an amazing dunker he is. Um, so 
I guess it's just the combination of the physical feat of being able to do it, but the mental creativity to just shatter all expectations for a dunk contest with that dunk. To me, it's my favorite dunk contest dunk of all time, including I would put it over uh, some of Jordan stuff, which you know has kind of held up maybe as iconic because of who he is as a player. The only people who come close to me are Zach Levine and Aaron Gordon. I mean, the butt dunk is ridiculously mm-hmm. creative. Um, so that one would be kind of in that same conversation. Levine, with some of the stuff that he's doing, it's almost too difficult to describe. And there are very few other humans on the planet who could kind of mimic his very best work. But I think that one takes the cake, man. I think that's the very best Speaking one. Speaking of cake, I, I stand for Gerald Green, who blew the candle oh, yeah. of a cupcake out on the back of the rim and still completed the dunk, which that's well, incredible. So let me ask you on that one. That's a great one. Does Vince Carter deserve credit for the creativity that came like over the next 10 dunk contests, right? Like, isn't everyone kind of looking back and being like, well, Vince set a pretty high bar, so I better like really dig deep to try to come up with something that could be in that same category as what he was doing? Dude, Vince was like the standard for years. He probably, you know, I don't want to take anything away from Zach Levine or Aaron Gordon or even like shout out to Blake Griffin and JaVale McGee in 2011, which I think is one of the more underrated dunk contests going back. But Vince, I mean, Vince Carter set the standard and the dunk contests that immediately followed that one are just so terrible because everyone like everyone was thinking about Vince and like you have poor Jason Richardson coming out and he's like I don't remember any of Jason Richardson's dunks and I think he won the contest more than he once. He was good. I know. He was really good, but that's the thing it's like Vince did it already. So now what? You know, and if you go back and watch Jason Richardson's dunks, technically they're brilliant. I mean, he's got that power, mm-hmm. he's got the finesse, he's got the um the you know, in-air ball handling which is very tricky. I mean, he's kind of doing it all. But yeah, you're you're watching you know, the the next version, season two, and Vince already did it. Um, okay, while we're on this subject of dunks and we're hyping up Vince Carter for them, I mentioned the dunk of death earlier, you know, 2000 Olympics, he jumps up and over Frederick Weiss or Weiss, uh, the 7'2 French center, and completes just a ridiculously powerful one-handed dunk, pumps the air, KG comes over to shove him out of celebration, have you ever seen a better in-game dunk anywhere, anytime? Um, and what would you say might be in the category, you know, with with that dunk uh, in terms of like the greatest ever? So I think it's inarguably the greatest in-game dunk of all time. I mean, it, it ended, like, how are we even pronouncing Frederick Weiss? Frederick Weiss, we'll just say Frederick Weiss for the purpose of this podcast. Uh it ended his career. I don't think he played a minute. He was a lottery pick by the New York Knicks, I think, and he didn't play a minute in the NBA. Um, Can't blame no. him, Michael, after that. <laughs> I'm, I mean, I'm backing out. Yeah. I think that was the right call. <laughs> um, if you go back and watch it, like Kevin Garnett just like blacks out right afterwards, and it, it's like one of the funniest things I, I've ever seen in a basketball game. I mean, like... He, Let me just hop in there real quick, Michael, because the KG reaction is so cool. I don't know if people saw this on Twitter. I had never heard this story, but apparently that USA Olympic team had a bounty if you could posterize Yao Ming. They were going to like you know put their money <laughs> together and give someone a million dollars if they dunked on Yao Ming. And apparently, as KG tells it, in that moment, 
he th- he like kind of lost track of who they were playing <laughs> against, and he thought Vince had dunked over Yao Ming and basically earned the million-dollar bounty. And so he was like going up to Vince Carter to be like, yeah, man, you got your money. And before he obviously realized that it, they weren't even playing China, that story is great, man. And, and I want to know about all bounties in, in NBA, especially posterizing bounties. I need to know about I, I this just this is why Kevin Garnett is just like in a class of himself like just a, an all-time all-time NBA character. Um so I think it's the greatest in-game dunk of all time. I don't I don't know how anyone could argue against it, but I will say that, you know, there is a tiny bit of an asterisk, right? Cuz it, it was in Olympic basketball. It was not in the NBA. So I went back and I watched some of Vince's better dunks in like in-game NBA dunks that weren't fast like on a fast break because he had his fair share in fast break situations that just like like he had a 360 as a rookie against the Cavs that was just like one of the like the most butter it was just like butter in a pan when he left the ground um but he had some other ones uh, particularly early in his career they were ridiculous as a rookie in 1999, he he dunked over Dikembe Mutombo at the rim, apex to apex, just like hung just longer than he did, got higher than Dikembe did. Uh, was so confident too, and he had such big hands where he could palm the ball and just uh, that's one of the better dunks you'll ever see. Um, he had this which I, this dunk that I completely forgot about, uh, where he blows by Chris Mullen, baseline. And Rick Smith's and the Pacers. Rick Smith's kind of comes over from the opposite block to contest it, but backs out at the last second. And Vince thinks that Rick Smith is going to try to to block a shot, so he takes off instead of dunking it on the same side of the hoop as where he took off from. He kind of he floats beneath the rim and reverses it and just throws it down incredibly hard over his head. One of the most ridiculously athletic things you'll ever see a basketball player do against other professional basketball players. Um, but I, I want to shout out my personal favorite Vince Carter dunk of all time, which I think might even be more impressive just because it was who it was on than the dunk of death. Which is, uh, you know, shortly after he gets traded to the Nets, the Nets are playing the Miami Heat down in Miami. And Vince Carter... It's in a half-court situation, and he's coming. He's driving towards the basket. There's a loose ball. He picks it up, driving towards the basket. He sees Alonzo Mourning. Alonzo Mourning has, like, great position. He wasn't caught off guard at all. And Vince Carter just unleashes this fury on Alonzo Mourning that I have not seen since. Like, no one has dunked on anyone harder than Vince Carter dunked on Alonzo Mourning there. People need to go watch that one. It is, like... Vince Carter cocks the ball back. He's in the air for like 25 seconds. The degree of difficulty is astronomical. That, to me, is just the the, the pinnacle of his career, probably, uh, besides the dunk contest. And I don't know, like, it, it, that, I don't think that that dunk was what spawned the Alonzo Morning gif, but it should have, because it's ridiculous. It's funny, when he completes those kinds of dunks you actually you you do see like the inner anger come out every once in a while and you just can't help but think man if that guy played with that ferocity Mm -hmm. the the entire way where does his career go i actually think the dunk of death is the greatest dunk in game of all time 
And I think that we shouldn't hit the asterisk button on the fact that it came in the Olympics. And here's why. I thought Frederick Weiss played pretty good defense, all all things considered, (laughs) right? I mean, it's a loose ball scenario. Vince has has the ball around the three-point line, takes a couple of dribbles to get himself ready to take off. Weiss gets into good position. He's set. He is ready to take the charge. He is outside the cylinder or whatever else you want to call it. Like he he's in a reasonable defensive position. He's ready to rock. Um, and ultimately, a guy just jumped over the top of him. That's ridiculous. There's no reason for anyone to assume that that was about to happen. And if Vince hadn't cleared him, he would have taken the charge, right? My favorite part of that dunk, and there's a lot of them, but if you go frame by frame, after <laughs> after Carter lands, right, um, and it's amazing because he goes like uh, spread eagle, looks exactly like the Jumpman logo. He actually finishes the finish, which we always see guys screw up, right? Like it's so easy to back rim that. I mean, usually I front rim it, Michael, when I'm jumping over people. You know, it's just it's very difficult art. Not everyone can just master sure, it perfectly, but uh, it's it's very easy to try to do like the Blake Griffin throw dunk where you're just flinging it at the hoop and maybe it hits back rim. Um, He hits it completely cleanly, lands and celebrates, but the best moment is when Weiss looks back up over his shoulder at the basket as if like somehow that was going to explain what had just happened. Like if he just looked at the rim and, and the hoop long enough, he would be able to kind of comprehend that he just got completely hurdled. It's amazing. The look on his face, I mean, he, he looks kind of like a ghost. Uh, he can't really wrap his mind around. And I think he said recently, you know, that was the moment he realized that humans could fly, uh, you know, beautifully put by him. Um, and ultimately, like, I don't think he needs to be remembered you know, like a Brandon Knight or some of these other guys where they're just like, oh, they're the victim. Like, I mean, obviously he is uh, on the wrong side of that dunk, but he has nothing to be ashamed of. You know what I mean? This is the first line of his obituary. Like this is, (laughs) this is his stamp as a human being. I'm just, I'm trying to stand up for the little guy who's actually a big guy on this one because he pretty much played it right. It just, he got outplayed and there's no shame in that. (laughs) Um, And it is a little bit. I want to jump in real quick with a, a quick personal anecdote that kind of puts me in the, in the Frederick Weiss driver's seat. Uh, it's similar. It's not exactly the same. No one really dunked on me. But when I was playing intramural basketball freshman year in college, we went up against a team that had like three or four guys on it that probably should have been playing D1 basketball. And I don't know why they were in our intramural league. They should not have been allowed. They were re- absolutely absurd. And so we're losing by probably, I don't know, 20 points, like three minutes into the game. And for some reason, I pick off a pass and I'm headed the other way, fast break layup. And I hear these footsteps coming. Like, I know this dude is galloping to try to block my shot. And so I don't even leave my feet to uh, attempt the layup because I just want to get the ball up off the glass as quickly as possible. And as I let go of the ball, uh, this man, I look up and I see uh, this man's rear end and he hurdled me and pinned the ball or I should say he slapped the ball 
basically so hard off the glass that it didn't land until it got to midcourt. And that's when I knew that I was never going to be a good basketball player. That was like the moment where it was like, all right, I just kind of want to retire. Um, Oh, one of the most, yeah, one of the most humiliating things I think anyone can ever go through. And I just, I, I hope you're giving me credit for telling that story on the podcast. Was the man's name LeBron James? Like, how do we build this story up to help you save face, Michael? <laughs> I wish it was uh, LeBron James. It was actually Jordan Crawford is is who did it. And uh, Nike had to confiscate all the tapes and all the footage. But That's yeah. incredible. Um, you're very brave for telling that story. Um, that, that made me kind of cringe <laughs> a little bit on your behalf. Like, I don't know. I got like reverse goosebumps kind of, you know? Um, in any case, amazing story. A couple final quick Vince Carter questions here. Then before we pivot, Michael, um, I mentioned some of his contemporaries like AI, Wade, LeBron, you know, guys kind of from that particular era where it's, you know, early 2000s and into the 2000s. Of those types of players, even Tracy McGrady, where do you have Vince? I mean, is he a cut below all those guys in terms of guys that you liked or you enjoyed watching? Um, you know, I don't want to belabor this point, but I just am trying to stack him up compared to you know the other guys, the biggest names from that time period. For me, he's behind all of them. Yeah. Um, and I'm no Tracy McGrady stan, really. You know, I think that he suffered from some of the same questions that Vince did in terms of getting over the hump and winning and everything else. But if you're saying like who's just kind of a more raw, talented basketball player i think i take t-mac i would definitely take iverson's career over carter and then guys like lebron and wade i feel like are easily cuts above where carter landed uh you know and and you could say the same thing obviously for kobe Mm -hmm. as well anyone else you would say that you'd have carter over or under or or where do you come down no he's behind all those guys iverson braun wade mcgrady kobe i mean he's pretty firmly uh, not at that level in terms of peak uh, and even just the overall impressiveness of careers. I mean, like Tracy McGrady was in a lot of ways wasted talent. I don't think he applied himself to the degree that he probably should have and could have, uh, but at least he won two scoring titles and he made five more All-NBA teams than Vince Carter did. So when I'm trying to compare Vince to some respectable names throughout history that are in the hall of fame like i think maybe grant hill might be the closest comparison just as like from the the perspective of someone who was just ridiculous out the gate and the sky was the limit and he had the potential to be the face of the league and then Injuries kind of short-circuited Carter, but they obviously short-circuited Grant Hill's career a lot more, and they forced him to be this role player who played until he was 40 years old. And that's kind of where the similarities are. Uh, but Grant Hill, you know, he made five All-NBA teams, and I think his, his apex was better. He was a better all-around player than Vince Carter was as well, just a better playmaker. So that's kind of the only comparison I have there. But even Grant Hill, I'm still putting him above Vince. Yeah, I'm with you on that. It's an excellent comparison. So just for, for context sake, Grant Hill averaged 16, 6, and 4. Vince averaged 16, 4, and 3. I mean, that's pretty darn mm-hmm. similar, you know, both of them playing over 1,000 games. I would agree that Grant Hill was a better player with a higher peak. 
Um, but similar trajectories, like you're mentioning. And again, I think if, if Grant gets in, I think Vince gets in, you know, uh, for the Hall of Fame. Last question for you. And I think that, you know, some of Vince's diehards certainly feel this one very personally. You know, his last game came in March. Um, they basically played it after it became clear the coronavirus was probably going to be shutting mm-hmm. down the league as a whole. Um, it was that weird Wednesday night where Gobert tests positive, but the other games keep playing. Um, and then everybody realizes, okay, you know, after tonight, the, the whole thing is going to be indefinitely suspended and we don't know where it's going. Uh, because of that, uh, Atlanta's coach, you know, checked Vince Carter into the final game in overtime. It was sort of already out of hand. They, they drop the play for Vince Carter. The Knicks don't guard him. And Carter buries a three from the top of the key as his last shot and, and gets a really nice standing ovation from the crowd down there. So kind of a bittersweet way for him to go out, you know, in terms of he gets the the nice send-off, but at the same time, you know, his his career kind of ended before he expected by at least a month uh, because of the coronavirus. I mean, what do you make of that? And, like, just this impact that coronavirus could have on some of these different guys' careers, you know, in ways that maybe, you know, we haven't even thought about or discussed. Yeah, it sucks. Um, I also, just before I answer your question, I want to, Thank you for giving the New York Knicks credit for not guarding Vince Carter for the reasons that you outlined, as opposed to just them not guarding anyone because they didn't play defense all season. No, no, the Knicks have shown the <laughs> utmost respect to NBA legends uh, and non-legends. Sure. I mean, basically anyone. If you need to get a free three-pointer, yeah, go for exactly. it. You know? The Knicks are your yeah, team. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> the whole thing is it's terrible. Like, I kind of wish that there was this... Vince Carter provision or something where he was able to just sign with a a contender and compete in the playoffs if he wanted to. I don't even know if that would be something he'd be interested in, but he's kind of shied away from... Wait, so this is sort of like when they let Dirk Nowitzki be an all-star like his last season, that's what you have in mind? Him and Wade, yeah. Um, I mean, kind of, except this would be a lot I guess less precedented in terms of it was clearly breaking <laughs> rules. <clears throat> um, but yeah, no, I think that like it, it would be just fun to see Vince Carter play again. And he was not super terrible in Atlanta. I mean, the Atlanta Hawks were a bad team and he was doing the most he could with what he had around him. Um, but he's obviously like, I mean, he's past 40. He's the only player in NBA history to play in four different decades, I believe. Um, and like, I I don't know, he's kind of shied away from, uh, ring chasing in these latter years of his career, which is both admirable and disappointing. Like, I want him to be a little more selfish. I want him to go maybe the David West route, as someone just pops in my head, who who clearly wanted to win a ring and wasn't ashamed of it. Like, why wouldn't Vince Carter, instead of taking the, the role of the locker room leader and someone who could be this presence for young players like, uh, like Trey Young, like just get your ring or at least compete for the ring. I mean, he could have he I I feel like he could have not a humongous role on a championship contender, but someone who could get on the court in some capacity in a rotation. Am I Well, yeah, if you're the Lakers, would you rather have Vince Carter, J.R. Smith or Dion Waiters, you know? I mean, I think I'd rather have Vince I Carter. I agree with you. For a lot of the re- like on and off court reasons, for sure. 
Yeah, so, I mean, that's that proves your point. I mean, you're also saying, like, he was playing pretty well this year in Atlanta. I mean, there's a realistic scenario that he could have come back and tried to go for another year if he wanted to. I mean, I, I think that he's not been the same guy for a number mm-hmm. of years, but if we're saying veteran minimums contract, like, why not? Um, he probably could have done it. I listened to his podcast where he was explaining his retirement, and the word golf came up a lot, Michael. Golf is uh, fun, man. I mean, like, golf 30, is fun. Like, 30... 35 times probably in the first 10 minutes. So I think that it's a little bit easier to spend the next nine months when we're all just kind of living uncertain lives out there, you know, getting an 18 or 36 Mm -hmm. every day as compared to trying to, you know, do everything you have to do to stay in NBA shape uh, and wait for next year, you know, whenever that might come. All right, Michael, I want to uh, thank you, first of all, for that uh, deep dive into Vince Carter's uh, legacy, career, retrospective, all of that. But I do think we should pivot because on Friday, the NBA released its schedule. And I'll be honest, this was not like a typical preseason release where we're all like ranking the 50 best games and looking at the Christmas slate and everything else. I mean, it's obviously a little bit different because we're dealing with, uh, you know, the regular season, you know, two weeks of games that are going to, you know, pick up here uh, in Orlando at the end of July. But still, I saw quite a bit of buzz, you know, people getting excited, trying to break down who's got the toughest uh, slate, who's got the easiest slate, how does it impact the playoff chase, and, and these kinds of questions. Um, you know, first of all, if, if anyone hasn't seen it, games begin July 30th, which is a Thursday. The NBA uh, wasted no time milking Zion. He's going to be in the very first Shameless. game against the Utah Jazz. <laughs> Just an incredible move by them. I love it. They hear like two months straight of uh, reports on, oh, the NBA is only doing this for money. They just want to get Zion in. That's the only reason why they're, they're expanding to 22 teams. And they're like, yep, here we go. <laughs> First game. Uh, and that same night, the, the Clippers will play the Lakers. A pretty no-brainer uh, major matchup. Uh, the following night, Friday, uh, you've got a number of good games, but probably highlighted by the Boston Celtics uh, versus the Milwaukee Bucks. Um, you know, that, that one's going to get people to tune in. Uh, there, there's no question mm-hmm. about it. So, Michael, when you were looking through the schedule, what was your biggest takeaway? And then did you have, like, one game more than any other over the first week that you were looking forward to and why? Sure. So, I mean, before we get into this discussion, I think we need to quickly talk about how, like, the strength of schedule markers posted across the Internet by some of our very smart colleagues are just, like, little more than a total guessing game. I just think there are way too many variables in play. And there's a lot of assumptions being made. Like, I don't think the players coming to Orlando are going to be exactly who they were four months ago. And the teams aren't going to be what they were four months ago as a result of that. I mean, there could be players who take unexpected leaps forward. There could be players more likely that are god-awful because of various reasons. I think it's just an unprecedented situation in terms of time off. It's comparable to one team transitioning through an offseason. And, you know, even when there are minimal personnel changes from the end of one season to the beginning of another, that team is always different. And chemistry is never just, uh, you know, static from one year to the next, which is how we should be viewing this. So... You look at that, which is really difficult to quantify, and then also you kind of factor in, uh, you know, players that are impact players, starting quali- starting caliber players on really good teams who are not going to be making the trip down to Florida. You know, the Lakers are going to be down a starter. 
the Clippers just signed another big man, and we don't know what Lou Williams is going to do necessarily. The Blazers lost Trevor Ariza. Uh, the, we talked about the Heat and how they were incorporating two players and Jay Crowder and Andre Iguodala, and we don't really know what they're going to look like. The Pelicans were still figuring out how to incorporate Zion Williamson. So there's just a lot of moving parts here, and I think it's really difficult to 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 guess or gauge which teams are going to lose collective focus and which teams are going to maintain or sustain it down there. Uh, so I, I don't know. Like I do have some takeaways just looking at it under the assumption that all these teams are going to be performing as they were, but I do not think that that's a fair assumption to make. No, I mean, your your points are very well heated. I mean, we see teams that we expect to build on you know, positive momentum from one year to the next fall on their faces regularly, and we see teams that we expect to slide, you know, after maybe losing a key player, you know, take off unexpectedly the following season. I mean, you really can't know, and, and when we're looking at the, the amount of time off here being more than four months, that's longer than a typical right. offseason. So, yes, uh, all concerns are validated at the same time michael i think some people might say okay bro um uh, <laughs> thanks for the uh, the intellectual take but the stars are still going to be sure. there right zion's still going to be there for new orleans lebron's still going to be there for the lakers Kawhi's still going to be there for the clippers uh tatum versus Giannis. that's still that same matchup uh you know whether you played it in march or or august and i i hear those voices too because ultimately like we do have to sort of readjust and reacclimate to this notion that like we could actually be watching basketball here in you know roughly one month, um, and if that happens, I do think part of your brain is going to click back on, and, and even if you're just watching to see okay which team came out of this thing properly or or well or which team doesn't have the chemistry, I mean you're going to be asking those kinds of questions when we get there in a month. So I guess you know which of these uh, you know which of these uh, matchups have you excited. Or at least intrigued to to, to do the uh, the nitpicking type analysis that I'm describing. Friday, July thirty first at four p.m. inside the historic Visa Athletic Center, the Phoenix Suns versus the Washington Wizards. How excited are you for that matchup? Oh, come on, <laughs> Michael! God, he's so sarcastic. Um, yeah, I mean, does one of those teams get eliminated from the entire chase if they, if they lose? They both have a lot of room to make up. It's sort of like your whole summer hinges on that very first no, game. Yeah, literally um, a loser goes home competition right there. But, uh, I mean, more seriously, to answer your question. Yeah, ser- stop okay, hating, okay, Michael. Okay. Come on. Bring a, bring a good attitude to this, uh, to this so, exercise. opening please. night. I got. I'm a little cynical when it comes to the first matchup, the Pelicans Jazz. I mean, I understand. Want, everyone wants to see Zion. I understand the draw with the Pelicans and them making the push to actually get that eight seed. But like, why are they matched up against the Utah Jazz, a team that they're one of their better scorers is just not going to play because he just had surgery? And I, I don't know. I think that that's a weird opponent to start things off with. But the game right after that, Clippers, Lakers, I mean, that's before the season was suspended, that was that was everything. Those two teams, everyone wants to see them in a seven game series. Uh, some of the most memorable regular season games from uh, this past season were between those two, in my opinion. Like I can still, in my mind's eye, see Kawhi guarding 
LeBron James down the fourth quarter stretch of that Christmas Day game and and just like the the the, the star power, the stakes, uh, just the fact that they're both LA teams and there's just like this whole uh, like this inner city rivalry. Like I love it a lot. Uh, I can't wait to see those two match up. I can't wait to see LeBron. I can't wait to see what shape Kawhi's in. So that's going to be a lot of fun. Um, and then the Celtics Bucks matchup, which is the next day. I think that's a, like a close second for just the, the, the top tier matchups I'm most looking forward to, because I think that those are the two, I mean, no disrespect to the Raptors, who I think are excellent, but I think that those are the two best teams uh, in the Eastern Conference, and I just can't wait to see how Giannis looks. I can't wait to see how Tatum looks. Uh, I, I like Kemba Walker should be healthy now. Uh, there's a lot of, a lot of intrigue with those four teams. Cause there aren't a lot of teams down there that can actually win it all. I think like there's, I pr- there's probably five, maybe six teams and to get matchups between four of them right off the bat is exciting. So um, I, I think you did a nice job summarizing those headlining matchups. I mean, LeBron should be coming out to make a statement in that first game. Right. I mean, we, we saw how much or a positive uh, buzz and juice they got out of the win over the Clippers back in March. You have all this time off. He's been kind of laying low from a basketball perspective. Mm-hmm. Uh, and yet you have, you know, all these conversations about social justice and everything else. I can kind of see LeBron bringing basketball back with like a 40 and 15, you know, and everybody's just like, oh my God, I can see that emerging in my mind's eye, Michael. I'm going to give you two sleeper games from the okay. first week that I think uh, really have me excited. And I'm surprised you didn't pick either of them because they both involve your Houston Rockets, okay? <laughs> the the first one is on that Friday night, um, basically the nightcap yep. game is Houston versus Dallas. And, you know, I've had all these theories. Is defense going to wind up sort of winning out here because it's going to be ugly play and choppy play and everything mm-hmm. else? Or are we going to be seeing like five-on-five five just kind of pickup style basketball? If there's two guys who I want to see, like, how do they just operate and orchestrate in this environment? It's Luka and Harden. You know what I mean? Um, The idea that the final score of that game might be 165 to 162 has me a little bit excited. Now, there is backfire potential here. Um, You know, if it's like 90 to 86, we're going to have to wipe this podcast (laughs) off the face of the planet. That will save you from everyone knowing that you got jumped over for a block. Um, It would also save me from a bad prediction. But uh, that one I'm certainly got circled. The other one I've got circled, Sunday, Milwaukee versus Houston, and that's uh, August 2nd. That one's going to be on ABC. The reason why I've got that one circled, Michael, is you know, we played that game. Hey, do you remember that transaction where we were going through all the different uh, minor moves that had happened in February mm-hmm. and March? And like, oh, holy cow, Markeith Morris is on the Lakers. We did that last week. Um, if anybody didn't check that podcast out, please do. Do you remember that trash talk, Michael? Do you remember at All-Star Weekend when Giannis was going at Harden about, you know, basically we're going to attack him because he doesn't play any defense and it was going back and forth and Harden was not pleased about it. And, you know, everyone's saying who's the real MVP and it was going on and on for like four rounds. We need to see that play out in an empty gym in Orlando. If there's chances for, um, you know, uh, rekindling that type of trash talk, I think Sunday, August 2nd is the day. The fact that that was only four months ago <laughs> makes me feel like I'm going to live forever. <laughs> like, I, that is incredible. I remember, uh, yeah, we were... You didn't remember that trash talk, <laughs> no, did you, Michael? It was a long I time ago. I did not remember that trash talk, but I was there. I remember now... 
uh, you and I recording an episode in my hotel room where we were recapping it right after it happened when we sat in on the press conference. Uh, yeah, it's a lot has happened since then. Uh, worrying and thinking and pondering about uh, NBA trash talk is something I have not considered doing in a very long time, but I'm I'm here for it now. I guess uh, that that matchup will be fascinating uh, in a, for a lot of reasons. I mean. Like the Bucks before all this happened, they were this like un. They were expected to waltz to the finals. I think it's fair to say in a lot of ways there was not a lot of, uh, not a lot of holes in how they played basketball on either end. They had the MVP, and you're right. This is a statement game for the Houston Rockets in a lot of ways, and they're my pick to <laughs> win the championship until further notice. And uh, I think to do that, they'll most likely need to jump up a, maybe a spot or two in the standings to get to the, the four or the five uh, seed. And winning games like this will obviously help them do that. So, yeah, I mean, I'm obviously going to tune into that one. I, I, I'm very excited. Uh, there's a slight overlap between that game and, and Dallas versus Phoenix, which is going to just really that's just gonna gut my soul not being able to sit through that one but well michael 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 it's just gonna be like summer league you're gonna be able to have multiple <laughs> screens up simultaneously for anyone who hasn't like really dug into this they're gonna be playing up to seven games per day um in three different gyms with staggered starts and so on the longest days michael people are going to be able to watch 10 straight hours of basketball um, basically starting from like 1 p.m. Eastern, you know, w- w- until the game is basically ending around 11 p.m. Eastern. I don't know about you, but the fact that these are going to be real NBA players and not summer league players has me a little bit excited. Also worried about how much basketball I might be consuming. I'm, I don't know if I have to put myself on like a ration, <laughs> um, but I'm so, so stoked for it. Um, they've also got up to four nationally televised games per day. So again, if you're someone who doesn't have uh, your favorite team has been eliminated or, uh, you know, you don't have your local cable package or whatever else, you're going to be able to see up to four games on any given day, NBA TV, ESPN, TNT, or ABC. One other game to highlight would be Monday, August 3rd. Uh, the, the Pelicans versus the Grizzlies. And we had all this talk, Michael, about the Zion chase towards the play-in round and can they make the playoffs and force Zion versus LeBron in the first round and everything else. You know, the strength of schedule numbers that came out, which you've already dismissed, uh, but still we're going to discuss as if they're a real thing. Um, New Orleans had the by, easiest by schedule. <laughs> so ridiculous. By, by a lot. And they get the heads-up game against Memphis. They get two heads-up games against uh, Sacramento. And Portland has one of the tougher schedules, and they're in that mix there as well. Now, in fairness to the Pelicans, they had a very easy remaining strength of schedule before the shutdown. So they were already kind of anticipated to have a a little bit of a boost. Um, But certainly, they're in a prime position to either force that play in or potentially even overtake the Grizzlies. Now, the Grizzlies don't want to hear anything about that. You know know there's guys like Ja Moran... Mm -hmm he's probably seething right now at the way this thing has played out. So that August 3rd game, you know, people probably like pitch it as a a rookie of the year type battle uh, between Zion and Ja. That's going to be a really fun game too. What did you make of the Pelicans strength of schedule? Like, do you think they're going to be able to get in? I think they're going to be able to for sure. Um, I also think that it's, I mean, yeah, to your point, like before all this happened, their strength of schedule 
which was easier to gauge, was pretty easy. And that's why a lot of the projections had them making the playoffs, despite being so far down in the standings with some teams to leap over. But, like, I don't know. This is, like, they're really playing, like, if you just look at the teams that they're going up against, there's really, like, only one team that I would say is good, and that's the Clippers. They play once. Like, I... I, I mean, no disrespect to the Jazz, who I'm kind of discounting, but, I, you know, not having Bogdanovich is going to hurt them. Like, the Clippers are really the only team that's tough. Like, they play the, the Grizzlies, as you said, who are just a big question mark to me because of their youth. Uh, yeah, like the Kings, Wizards, Spurs. Like, they play the Kings twice, actually. Uh, and then they they close out uh, against the Magic. So, like, that's a joke. And, like, I, I understand... Like, I just don't think it's a coincidence that this team has something sort of like a cakewalk uh, in front of it, and there's really no excuses for them not to make the playoffs. And I do wonder, though, if they were to slip up in the first three games, let's say they, like, get blown out and they start this whole thing 0-3, can you envision a scenario where the Pelicans as an organization are just kind of like, all right, well, this isn't our year and we're just going to sit Zion and we're going to sit Brandon Ingram for the rest of this thing. Like that would be, (laughs) that would be a disaster. If that happens, I think Adam Silva will personally go onto the court with Bob Iger and drag (laughs) Zion's body (laughs) into the the starting circle to jump tip. Um, Yeah. I, I, don't see that happening unless it really is an extreme situation where they just like go zero and five and it's like all right the, the whole thing is done um but it would be something to watch there's no question about it um all right our final question here and we're going to get through this quickly michael i want you to make your dream playoff matchups because one thing to keep in mind with these uh seating the seating games that are going to take place over the first two weeks of the tournament is that none of the matchups have been set yet we don't know for sure any pairing one to eight um, or two, seven, three, six, four, five. None of them have been set uh, in either conference. They're all prone to being kind of mixed and matched in different ways. So, Michael, what I want you to do is play matchmaker. Let's start in the Eastern Conference. If you could have your ideal um, playoff matchups for the first round, who are they? So, like, who do who do the Bucks play, and then and so forth? Go from there. Yeah, I mean, okay. So from the top. Bucks, I guess it doesn't really matter, <laughs> but uh, I guess, I mean, I would like to see personally the Wizards, I suppose, just because I want to see Brad Beal make it, and I like watching him play basketball, and there's really no, no one as good as Brad Beal on the Brooklyn Nets or the Orlando Magic, which are the two teams more likely uh, to get to the eighth seed, but I know that that's not going to happen, but that's what I want. Um so I mean, Bucks Nets is probably what I'm pro- personally projecting there for the one v eight. It's a possibility that the Celtics get to the two seed. Uh, I don't necessarily think that's going to happen just because they have such an easy schedule. But the Raptors are extremely good, and I don't think that they'll falter because of just who they are and what their makeup is. Yeah, let me chime sure. in there real quick. The Raptors actually have a, a tougher schedule, so it is possible they have a lot of room to make up in a short time period, but. If the Raptors, you know, succumb to a tough schedule, Boston mm-hmm. has a cake schedule. You put those two together, it could right. happen. It could happen. Um, I so I, I think for the purpose of this, I'm just going to say that the Raptors are probably going to get the two seed, 
and they'll probably go up against the uh, Orlando Magic. Um, and that's going to be, that's like the NBA TV, like wet dream right there. That's just what we always get on that network. So that's perfect. Um, and then Celtics Pacers, which is just kind of a, a rematch of what feels like the last 19 first round series between or Boston's first round opponent the last 19 years has been the Indiana Pacers so that should be fun and then like where I'm actually intrigued and the series that I care about the most is the projected as of now 4-5 now this as you said could obviously change but the Miami Heat versus the Philadelphia 76ers is just like it has the makings of a classic and I really hope we see it. The teams, both teams are talented enough, I think, to appear in a conference finals. Now, obviously, they they both won't for a variety of reasons. But, like, if you just look at the star power, you have Embiid, you have Ben Simmons, you have Jimmy Butler, you have Bam Adebayo, the individual matchups where these guys are actually going to be defending one another and seeing who, where... Eric Spolstra puts Bam out of bio. Is he going to guard Embiid as he did during the regular season? Is he going to be kind of the Ben Simmons stopper? I'm really fascinated to see how that works out. Uh, the Heat like to go small. The Sixers like to play big. Both like to play pretty slow relative to the rest of the league. And then you obviously have the Jimmy Butler dynamic where he wants revenge and him going balls to the wall as someone who... Uh, you know, if you listen to our all quarantine draft, like Jimmy Butler is going to be in the top one person, I guess the 99th percentile or the one percent. I'm screwing that up, but the 90, he's going to be at the tippity top in terms of players who are in shape and ready to go. So I cannot wait to see what he looks like. And I want to see him with a little bit of extra motivation against a team that refused to give him a five year max contract. Awesome breakdown. I'm going to give you mine, and I'll be honest, my reasons are pettier. Uh, <laughs> there's no question about it. All right. I want Bucks Wizards in the first round. Um, as much as I've made fun of the Wizards over the years, the team that I want to see the absolute least in Orlando is the Brooklyn Nets. They're basically bringing no one. Um, they fired their coach. They, to me, aren't really deserving of a playoff spot. Um, you know, if we had taken the top 16 teams, I just would not have even included them. Um, I would have just like thrown the Pelicans into their spot. Um, so for that reason, get the Nets out of here. Bring the Wizards in. I like this matchup for Milwaukee because I would love to see Giannis average 55 points for a playoff series <laughs> and really just you know do something that no one else has done before. And I think the Wizards are the team to help him do that. You've got uh, the second matchup would be Toronto-Orlando. Honestly, not particularly thrilled about that one in any way. I guess it's a good tune-up for Toronto. They, It's kind of a rematch from last year if you want to pitch it that way. Um, you know, past that, whatever. Just get Orlando out of here kind of as quickly as possible. Um, and I, mostly I'm concerned about preserving the, the best teams for future matchups. And so, uh, you know, that sets up a possible Milwaukee-Toronto showdown down the road. Uh, now, the middle is where it gets interesting. I definitely was tempted by Heat Sixers like you were, but I went a different way, Michael. I want the Miami Heat to ruin your life by falling to the sixth seed and knocking out the Boston Celtics and just popping this Jason Tatum balloon. I want Jimmy <laughs> Butler locking him down. 
I want the, you know, completely ready to rock Miami Heat spoiling every narrative coming out of Boston. It'd be so funny. Um, So I want Celtics versus Heat. That would leave Pacers, Sixers. And the reason why I like that one is that it potentially sets up all sorts of kind of juicy uh, matchups down the road, whether it's Milwaukee versus Philly, whether it's eventually, you know, somehow Philly versus Boston or Philly versus Miami. Um, or even a rematch of Toronto-Philly, which, you know, of course, ended with that crazy Kawhi shot. I think no matter what, if you can come out of uh, the first round with uh, Milwaukee, Toronto, Philly, and then one of Boston or Miami, you're going to have awesome second round matchups, basically no matter what. So that's how I broke okay. it down. Um, your your you analysis rebut. is disgraceful. Your projections make me sick. I think that, uh, you know, like, don't you want to see in the second round the Celtics play the Raptors, a, a matchup we have never gotten the, the good fortune to witness? No. I want to see a bunch of people crying in Boston. That's what I want to see. <laughs> Uh, no, look, I mean, I think that's where we're headed. I'll yeah. be honest. Okay. I, I'm being a pretty tongue in cheek here. I, I think Boston Miami is just a really interesting first round matchup. If we get it, you know, I, there, I realize there's going to be a lot of uh, focus on, well, what does, you know, Miami Philly look like with the Jimmy Butler return and can Simmons step up? I mean, there's a million storylines that direction, but if you're saying like, which two teams are going to be locked in and ready to rock with awesome, uh, chemistry and culture and then just lead executives who basically hate each other in Pat Riley and Danny Ainge. That's an awesome series. And I know you don't like it because you're afraid. You don't want to see Miami. You're you're backing <laughs> off. You're, you're terrified. <laughs> I do love the, the bad blood between Danny and Pat Riley. That's always fun going way back to the 80s with the Lakers and the Celtics. Um, that would be cool, I guess. I mean, I'm not afraid, speaking just as my putting the green goggles on for two seconds. Uh, no, I, I, I'm not afraid of the heat if I'm the Celtics. I think the talent is just overwhelming. Um, <clears throat> but uh, Well, let's, let's uh, shift okay. to the West here because we're sure. running out of time. Give me your, your matchups in the Western Conference. Okay, so, I mean, Lakers, I, I guess, like, I got the Lakers, obviously, number one overall. Um I suppose I want to see the Pelicans. I want to see Zion versus LeBron. I want to see Brandon Ingram also and Lonzo Ball and those guys that got traded, um, discarded for Anthony Davis. I want to see them be angry and potentially maybe even win a game or two, which is totally possible. Um well, I really respect you for avoiding the, you know, the um, overthinking basketball Twitter take, which is, you know, I'd actually rather see the the Grizzlies. You know, that that'd be a more fun. They earned it. You know, they they deserve it. Look, I love the Grizzlies as well, but I think that if we're saying we have the opportunity to see Zion versus LeBron in round one, I don't think you can choose anything else. I really just don't. I don't think that's being a hype beast. I just think that like when we're saying basketball history, you know, where does Zion's career go? The idea that he could launch his postseason career mm-hmm. against LeBron in the bubble is pretty ridiculous. I think we all have to kind of root for that. All right, who I else? I mean, you got? next up we have the Clippers. Uh, Clippers against. I'm thinking Dallas is going to be the seven seed. They're just that's where they're most likely to land, and the Clippers are going to destroy them. Uh, three, I have. So I guess it gets a little more interesting here. Now the Rockets are sitting in fifth right now, I believe, or they're most likely to land in fifth. And 
I mean, they could get to the third seed, and I feel like I'm pushing it if I go that far. I don't want to be ridiculous. So I'm just going to say the Denver Nuggets will be the third seed, and they're going to go up against the Oklahoma City Thunder, in my opinion. And I I have no idea who's going to win that series. I think you cannot discount uh, the weird metamorphosis that we've seen with Jokic and how that's going to impact his game. I, I don't know how losing 40 pounds helps you in a basketball competition. Fighting for post position against Steven Adams, that's going to be uh, very interesting to look at. Uh, and Utah, Houston, I guess, is the 4-5 then in some order. And it just sucks for Utah, again, to run into this mismatch. They're, I, I, they just they can't defend that team that goes five out even more dramatically than they did in the past. I don't know who Rudy Gobert guards. This is his nightmare, and it's going to come true again. So here's how I did it. I went a different route. I, I want to see the Thunder slip and play the Clippers so we can get like the Chris Paul kind of revenge versus his former, former mm-hmm. team in the first round. Um, then I want to see uh, the Nuggets match up with the Rockets, primarily because I don't want to see the Rockets play the Jazz again. And I kind of, I don't know if I'm skeptical of Denver but I ultimately think Houston's one of the best four teams, and I think they'd be able to take care of Denver. So if they knocked Denver out in the first round, I would be just fine with that. And primarily what I'm trying to set up is Dallas versus Utah, because I do think Utah's like a, a wounded duck here without Bogdanovich. Mm-hmm. And if we can get Dallas and Luka through to the second round, so that the second round includes the Lakers, Clippers, Rockets, and Mavs, I feel like that's kind of ideal from a viewability, watchability, you know, viewership standpoint. So that's how I want it to shake out. What do you think? I don't think I would have a huge problem with that, but you're just totally discounting the possibility of Zion averaging 40 and 20 and upsetting the Lakers. Never discount that. <laughs> um, but yes, I think that even my, in my wildest pipe dreams do not have the Pelicans going on the miracle run uh, to the second round of the playoffs and beyond. But anything is possible at Disney World, Michael. All right, we've reached the end of another episode of The Open Floor. I want to call out all the people out there. Email us, openfloormail at gmail.com, openfloormail at gmail.com. Tell me the game that you're most excited to watch in the first week of the NBA's return. Tell me which first-round matchups you're dying to see. Tell me your favorite one. Break it down for us if we didn't hit it on this episode. And let us know what you remember the most about Vince Carter. We tried to cover every base, but I'm sure we left a few stones unturned. So let us know. Uh, While you're emailing us before or after... Go to our Apple Podcast page and search for Open Floor. That's two words. When you get there, scroll down. It will say rate and review. Tap five stars. It's just that easy to help us spread the word. It really helps us uh, you know, build a little momentum here as basketball gets closer to its return. Michael is on Twitter and Instagram at Michael Villasinvictor Pina. I'm on Instagram at Ben.Golliver. On Twitter, at Ben Golver. Be sure to check out that Vince Carter column that I mentioned. It's up on the Washington Post. I also have a little bit of an explainer um, that's that's going out in my newsletter about the new schedule. It'll answer all your questions and break down who's got the easiest schedules and, and the toughest schedules, everything else like that. Be sure to check it out. All right, Michael. Until later this week, I will talk to you. Talk soon, Ben.